I got this dress from this, like, there's this, like, Serbian designer who has this little, little shop of just her stuff. And I got a dress for the summer, very side boob, A+. plus. <laughs> Gotta respect the side boob. That is so. a very respectable fashion choice. Hi, I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this episode, we're going to ruin feminism. We're going to ruin feminism, but also I think we're going to ruin genitals. (laughs) Which I think a lot of people love. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, guys, but we we have to do this. Gotta do it. Gotta do it. (laughs) Okay. It's true. We really are ruining genitals. But (laughs) I would make an argument that they've already been ruined by other people, and we're just bringing it to light. That's true. So we're just ruining dear old Blighty. We're just ruining the UK. I mean, I don't know. We're ruining (laughs) British genitals. I Look. Look. We should just be clear. What we're really going to talk about is actually the trans-exclusionary feminist movement or whatever, what people call TERFs, and uh, how it has really like taken hold in the UK. And we're going to get there by sharing a really disturbing British uh, game show that I got to witness while I was in London. But before we get to all of that, we're going to check in. Maya, you just got back from England from vacation. How was your trip? How are you doing? And what are you drinking? Well, it's kind of early today, so I'm just drinking tea because I'm still dealing with jet lag. and I can't drink in the middle of the day, even on a good day. Mm. Um, But uh, London was awesome. We went to Manchester and saw Man City play Liverpool it was freaking amazing. Um, also in Manchester, conversation maybe for another day, but the People's History Museum, which is one of Ooh. the best things I've ever seen. It's like a whole museum just about the history of, of working people's movements for their political self-determinism. And it's yeah. beautiful. And it's like right That's on great. the river in Manchester. It was amazing. Uh, we did uh, a good balance of the sort of history death marches that I enforce on my loved ones. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, shopping and the kind of things that I find just frivolous. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're you're so serious minded all the time. All the time. All the time. Even on vacation, especially on vacation. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful to be on vacation. Yeah. I'm glad you had a good time. I'm glad that you did so many edifying educational activities, but also had time for the frivolity. It sounds perfect. How are you doing and what are you drinking, Ms. Lady? I'm doing okay. I'm doing fine. It's been a very stressful past week or two. Our cat had another major surgery, really the majorest that she's had. More major than brain surgery? Yeah, actually, I would say if you had to compare, this was more invasive and more involved. She had a growth, a lump. I don't know if I mentioned this to you. I might have told I, you. But I, I thought that there was some a little skin cancer, yes. but not like... She has definitely been having skin cancer as well. So she's had 
three surgeries so far to remove these uh, mast cell tumors, which are little skin tumors, but they're almost benign. They're the lowest level, not aggressive, whatever. Okay. So we knew that was going to be an ongoing issue because she already had a couple. She's likely to have more. But then we noticed this lump internally in, in her torso. And so we brought her in and uh, they did all of the imaging, all the diagnostic imaging, and they told us it was a carcinoma but that it was very well attached to her body wall, to like her musculature. So the, they could remove it, and um, it would require removal of part of that body wall, part of her musculature, which they would replace with mesh, you know, oh, like surgical girl. mesh. Oh, baby girl. I know, oh, I know. Oh, baby girl. So not to get too much into the like surgical details, but they found that her diaphragm, you know, the muscle you use to breathe was also implicated and they had to remove part of that. They had to remove a couple of her ribs and then reattach the diaphragm to the now new bottom rib on that side. I know. Uh, she was in the hospital for three or four days, which was a lot longer than we expected, but she's finally home and it's still, like, stressful because she's got to wear the cone, which she hates. We're supposed to keep her from jumping or doing anything that's, like, physically strenuous because they don't want her to pop the sutures that are inside. Yeah, we're like, ugh. But she's not in any pain. She's on opioids, and, and she's pretty chill. <laughs> so I'd love to be drinking something stronger, but it is the early afternoon here. Probably should just pour something in my tea. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, it's afternoon where you are, so you know. Yeah, at, at noon is the new five. New five no, <laughs> no, not for me, not for me. Well, I just wanted to bring up a couple of things uh, from our listeners about our Gone with the Wind episode, our problematic faves. One of them from longtime listener Matt Elmsley. He said. Uh, you know, I agree with everything you said, but have you ever read the book? As racist as the movie is, the book is so much more racist. They toned it down for the movie. And also, interestingly, it's the source for a lot of the Han and Leia dialogue from Empire Strikes Back. I did not know that about Empire Strikes Back, but I have always made that analogy. I've always said that Han Solo and Rhett Butler are like my two masculine ideals. And okay. I see them as very similar characters. Though. So on our Instagram, uh, Antoinette wrote to us, what, no mention of toxic masculinity is personified by Rhett Butler? Too obvious? <laughs> <sighs> I, I have to give some thought to that because like, there's so many ways in which Rhett Butler is not toxically masculine, but then there are definitely ways in which he is. Well, I think we were focused more on the problematic fave of Gone with the Wind as setting up these certain kind of narrative desires that are deeply problematic. Yes. And he is an agent of that. And this was a line that you edited out that I wanted to share uh, where we, when we'd finally landed on like what is so fucked up about Gone with the Wind, you said something like, yeah, we're more concerned with Scarlett's love life than the system that she's part of. And that that is what... <laughs> and I feel like... That's what I think is so interesting about Rhett Butler's toxic masculinity, about white womanhood in the movie, about what it does to us as viewers, does to our narrative expectations, does to our expectations of desire, is this sort of white lady desire that like my love problems 
are the center right? of the of, of the universe of the yeah. whole universe but also i have no power over any of this world stuff cuz these men tell me what to do and then there's this right. so it just it gives me this freedom it's like it's like well that was mm, what we were i think getting yeah. at is that that connection between um scarlet's willingness to submit to yes. to Rhett's dominance uh yes. you know in the bedroom in the marriage and Scarlett's complicity like unwillingness to take any responsibility for the system that she's part of it's all sort of braided up together yes. as you said and so yeah Rhett Butler Han Solo as these uh figures of desire also with some to toxic masculinity well yeah that's the problem <laughs> Those things, those, it's hard to disconnect it's all those things. part of the problem. Yeah. Well, thank you to those listeners for sharing those thoughts. And we also had great, we have great conversation going on uh, on the Saw Speakeasy. So jump on in. We have people bringing up more problematic faves that they would like us to get I into, including, including. So Matt said to you, we need to ruin 30 Rock. Yes. And literally not 24 hours later, one of our listeners was like, you've got to ruin 30 Rock. It's time. It's time to do it. And it's definitely a fave. We've got to put that one on the list. We'll do it. Um, and speaking of the Sauce Speakeasy and our wonderful patrons, I want to thank Kirsten Lund, who recently joined our Patreon. Um, I don't have any others to thank right now. There are several patrons that I haven't have ever had a chance to thank only because they never responded and told me it was okay to say their names on the episode. Write us back. Write us yep. back, guys. So, we want to say your names and say thank you. Exactly. If you're already a patron and you haven't already done so, please check your Patreon messages and let us know that we can thank you because we are very grateful. And also, if you're not a patron and you want to join the conversation on the Sauce Speakeasy, check out patreon.com slash sauce podcast. All patrons at every level get to come to that Discord chat. By the way, we've had a request to add a level at which uh, a patron can have lunch with us. Oh, isn't that a delightful idea? I, know, I would right? never see I would never think to put that as a Thank you for patrons because it would never <laughs> occur to me that that's something someone would want. But hey, if that's what the people want. Give the people what they want. All right. We just have to determine what membership level would justify such a... See, the thing is, it would be fun for us anyway. Yeah, I know. So our... yeah. Mm. Well, All definitely... right. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure, figure it that out. out. Yeah. All right, shall we? Because I really have to talk about this atrociousness that I made you watch. <laughs> okay, so context here. As we talked about, Maya just got back from this vacation to Britain, to England. And we were traveling with another family, this extraordinary family whose kids are best friends with our kids, and we love them. And it was, it was perfect. It was the best. And one night... Uh, the friend we were traveling with, Carrie, uh, the, the wife of the couple, was like, so I was watching TV and there's this show. And she started explaining it to me. And I was like, I don't understand it. For days, we were trying to get a sense of like what this was. And I finally watched it with Ben. 
and it's upsetting. So I so let's, let's the let's, na- the title of the show is Naked Attraction. Naked Attraction. It's a game show. It's a game show. It's a dating game show. In the same vein, in a lot of ways, as all your classic dating game shows, you know, the dating game from the 70s. There's like um, the Bachelorette. The Bachelorette. Yeah. So let me tell you how this dating show works. Okay, guys, (laughs) because you can't watch it in the States unless like get a VPN and say that you're in the UK and then it'll be on Netflix. Okay. Here's the way this show works. Like every dating show, you have the bachelor or bachelorette, like the person looking for love, mm-hmm. and then they get to choose from five a people. A selection. A yes. selection. They get a selection of people. In this show, it's five. When they come out, each of the five people is behind this big shield. They're like enclosed. Each person is in kind of like a little vestibule, a little private vestibule. There's like five... Yes little spaces it's but it's kind of blocked off so that you really cannot see them and the way that you choose and and they're okay hold on it's not that complicated I know I know but I'm trying to lead up to it but the person selects uh somebody to go with every round so they work their way from five to one and they do this trying your hardest to avoid saying the No, I'm about to get to it. I'm just setting it up. The big reveal. Five to one. And they do it by working backwards from the feet or rather from the genitals to the head. (laughs) Like the first thing that they, the first round that they cut somebody on is based on their genitals. So they lift, they lift this. May I? (laughs) Yes, please. So the premise of the show is that physical attraction is crucial and you should just go ahead and pick the person you are most physically sexually attracted to regardless but also but yeah. also that you want to see the real thing and yes. now with all the social media and filters and blah 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 you don't get to really see the real fucking thing so in each round they raise the screen that's shielding the selectees a little bit more so at first you only see the bottom half of their body because then, they're naked. They're but that's naked. what I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> hold off on saying that. Then you see their chest. I, was trying to... I know, but you could. Right. So the point okay. is, they are p- completely nude. So yes. that the first thing you see is like just the genitals. You, that's yes. really the the yes. initial round. And in each round, yes. someone gets eliminated. Then it's like, let's look at the tits. They, then somebody gets eliminated. Then you get to look at their actual faces. And then at the end, when it's narrowed down to two, the bachelor or bachelorette who's doing the choosing, they have to take all their clothes off. Yes. And then they just have to face the other, the two remaining people awkwardly, all naked. The host yes. is not naked. The host remains closed. Of course. And then they choose one of them to go out on a date with. And then you see them a month later and see, like, did anything right. come did, of this? Did they hit it off? So I would like to start with the genital round, which I think <laughs> is the part that is it's the most... It's what the show starts with, so... The show starts with it, Naked Attraction. So, yes, there are these five people in these little carols, in these little vestibules, and they're just naked. And once they raise the screen so that all you see are their genitals, then the bachelor or bachelorette 
talks through their genitals with the host. Like, yeah, I think that this is a, you know, this is a really cute vagina because of this. Oh, I like how neat and tidy this vagina is. I like that this peanut, I don't know about the legs. Like they sit there and assess their genitals with this TV host. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. one Talk of the about worst their things I've ever seen. Yeah. 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 Talk about what their they personally like and don't like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's the same with the breast. Then the breasts or the chest get revealed. And again, it's the same thing. Like, uh, I don't know. I really like big ones. There's not enough of a hand handful there. Like, And then when a person on every round, a per one person gets you know, rejected. And then that person comes out and then they do this weird thing where they show what that person looks like with their clothes on. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's the whole thing is the most trashy, degraded, awful thing. I, I couldn't, it's, it's unbelievable. And there's nine seasons of it. <laughs> there are <laughs> not, and this is on just basic TV. Yeah, it's on this TV. Is not, I mean, this is on TV. This could not happen in the United States. Even it could not. This would be too much, even for like HBO or whatever. Because yeah, the show starts with like here's five dicks, just yes. right there. It's like dick and balls, <laughs> right there. And then and then the, the sometimes the 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 Bachelor or Bachelorette will be like, turn around, I want to look at your asses, and they all just like turn around like some like some livestock, and they're like. Yeah. Look at the like it is very weird. It is very weird. Yeah, and it's disturbing on a number of levels. So many. Not all of which have to do with our main topic we're going to get to, but I think a few of which are yes. worth mentioning. Like there's this clear like embracing of objectification to an yes. extreme level where that I'm sure that Part of the appeal and part of what the makers of the show would say to justify it is that it's not gendered, right? The women objectify the men. The men objectify the women. They, I assume they have gay contestants. They do. And, they you do. know, women objectifying women, like, all that. It, but, like, it takes objectifying to another level by, like, when you're only looking at the bottom half of this person's body, literally like just you're removing any part of them that is human like that you can communicate with but I also think what's really weird about it is that they still frame it as like a looking for love show right like they still right. talk about it like these per so it isn't just like you're we're gonna find you somebody to fuck they introduce you to these people with the kind of typical reality oh, yeah. tv a little this background a who works this job and the the episode that i saw and this was the moment i had to stop watching like the first half of it was this guy who's like a club promoter and he's lived this wild life and now he just wants to find a girl and you're like all right fucking fine mm -hmm. the second half was this woman who's looking for love and she's like i'm a jane austen fan and i'm just looking for my mr darcy and and so i'm coming on a reality tv show where right. i'm looking examining at five men genitals. examining male genital like yeah really like the the gap between the profound dehumanization yeah and i am not anti like i no. look at genitals it's not <laughs> right, it's just, right. like, there's something about the structure of this show that's like so fucked up so it is fucked up. it is very fucked up and but you're right it is profoundly dehumanizing and yet they persist in this premise 
that it's the opposite of that. Yes. That, that somehow yes. we're just being honest and admitting yes. that we don't think about the whole person or we don't need the whole person or I don't know, or that we could break down a whole person into their component parts. Their component parts. And the, when you start with the genitals and you have the the host walking around with the bachelor or bachelorette and they walk from Carol to Carol and discuss this person's genitals yeah. to them while they can hear you. Yeah, right like, in front of them. And while they're stuck behind this and have no, like, because it's also something you can't choose. Like, you have no choice on what your genitals look like. Like, and so you're But you can there choose being... whether to be on this fucking show. <laughs> That's true. That's totally true. But there's also this way in which the, the dehumanization and the breaking down of the person into component parts makes it not sexual at all. At all. It's at talking about sex. All. They're talking like and, and and giggling like it's a sexy thing. Ooh, I, I kind of like to tickle a nipple. I, I like to suck on toes, you know, and things like that. But nothing could be less sexual. <laughs> nothing could be less sexual than five naked people standing in this tiny box with their, their faces blocked <laughs> while you evaluate <laughs> the quality aesthetic the aesthetic quality of, of their penis like yeah not it's, it's yeah, not sexy at all not even a little bit and yet obviously it is a wildly popular show because it has happened for eight or nine seasons i mean they've been doing this for a while I, i'm absolutely flabbergasted that they have found that many people <laughs> willing to be buck naked full frontal nudity on television and here's one more thing also and my friend was really like focused on this she's like and it's not like these people are even like these are regular people yes who are coming on the show <laughs> these are so regular it's not like they're folks getting they're not getting like models or like whatever porn stars, right. aspiring or, like, actors aspiring and actresses actors. who are beautiful, nubile young things. No, there's a variety, which like I guess credit to that aspect of it, in that it's sort of like normalizing being normal, sort of saying there's all these kinds of bodies and they're regular folks, but. It's really wild to me that anyone would subject themselves to that. I can't imagine. Why? <laughs> I uh, honestly, it's it is so bizarre. It is so, and when I came because we were able to watch it on Netflix over there, because my son was sleeping in the, we were staying in these kind of service flats, and my son was sleeping in the room where the TV was. So Ben and I was like, Ben was mm -hmm. like, you have to watch this. We watched a, a half an episode until she started talking about Miss Darcy, and that I just wanted to like, <laughs> jump off a bridge. <laughs> it reminded me of this thing that I I was I wrote this piece years ago where I said that. TV is like is like depression for me. Like without it, I can think the world's okay, but then with it, I sometimes want to kill myself. Like it was yeah. really one of those things where you're like, this reveals too much about yeah. what you were making programming for. Um, but when we came back to the states, it's not on U.S. Netflix. Right. So like clearly, it's like it is. It has not made its way across the pond. Naked attraction has not made it over here yet. It's a lot for the American sensibility, I think. <laughs> I mean, I imagine it's a lot for the British too, which is part of the titillation and excitement of it, is that it's so boundary pushing. And what was so weird is that on a, another night we were watching just British TV and they have like a 
Great British Bake Off, except it's these three garden designers designing <laughs> gardens for people. And right. then this trivia show that's like really like intense trivia. And then this, like what is going on in this? What is the... Mm. Yeah, I can definitely imagine people liking it because it's so beyond what should be acceptable. Like even on British TV, showing a dick is still a pretty big thing. Showing five dicks like all at once. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's a lot. the way that it's sort of sassy in its um, that sort of we're just saying what everyone's thinking kind of attitude. Like every everybody cares about bodies. So we're just going to embrace that. We're going to lean in to this sort of shallow and is, physical is, idea. Is the mental game of sex, which to me is pretty much what it is, is that completely... Is there no place for that? Like the not, the not on of, this show. <laughs> not on this show, for sure. Not on this show. That's the other thing: is that its idea of what sex is is the most like really. It's, it, yeah, it, like, it, it's like so. It's dry. That's the thing. Yes. Like, like in trying to be so racy, it's presenting you with an idea of sex that is like mechanical. Sex is so much more than. <laughs> the attractiveness of a body or even you know people have all kinds of ideas about what they think they're attracted to you may say i like a guy with a broad chest and hairy legs or whatever the hell you think you like but when push comes to shove that's not necessarily who you wind up fucking or who's going to no. be the best lay like yeah. it just doesn't work out that way yeah and, or and, who or who you're going to connect with and go on that special pervy ride together like yeah. like like the show <laughs> specifically prevents any kind of connection from happening they don't even see each other face to face until the very end although that does happen but like Looking at a floppy dick, like, what does that tell you? It doesn't tell you anything. You're not going to get aroused by it. So it's all theoretical and in principle. Well, I happen to like a dick that's like this or like that, as opposed like, to or actual like, I attraction. Don't like, I don't like this dick because it curves to the left. You're like, I, I yeah. don't know, man. This was like, so anyway, so this is, so why am I telling you guys about the show? <laughs> okay. Okay. Why have I made Rebecca watch this show? Why am I telling you about this show? Because it made me go, wow, this genital focus is making me think about Britain and its turf problem. Yes. Turf stands for trans exclusionary radical feminists. Trans exclusionary. So it's feminists who are saying we're radical feminists. But you only get to belong to the club if you are cisgendered, if you are born with the with, genitals, that with we... the genitals, with the equipment. Mm -hmm. And I was like, there is a connection here. There has got yeah. to be a connection here. Like why? Because turfdom, there's always anti-trans stuff everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a huge anti-trans movement, as you know, in the news, in terms of laws that are being passed, bathroom laws in Texas right now, parents who are helping their trans children with whatever medical care they need, doctors who are helping children with whatever medical care they need can be arrested. Yeah, okay? So right now they're criminalizing <laughs> giving medical care to trans kids. We have a trans problem in this country for sure. An anti-trans problem. An anti-trans problem. What I find fascinating is that in the UK, 
feminism and anti-transness are really holding hands in this way that I don't see in the States. In a very big way. Yeah, and I see what you mean about the show and how it would make you think of that. Uh, because the very idea that you are attracted to genitals is mentioned a lot in anti-trans discourse. I mean, there's a very long history of anti-trans sort of like sexual panic of like, what if I date a woman and I like her and then it turns out she has a dick? And the very idea that like actually you're attracted to the woman and not yep. not that <laughs> aspect of her, like could you possibly conceive of that? That like even if you're straight a straight man, it's not actually vaginas that you're attracted to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that that's that's a big part of anti-trans thinking and talking has right. to do with this idea that that like vaginas are the place where attraction happens. I don't know. Um, yes, but also this weird thing where it's like people who then are trans who do not feel themselves to be the gender of their genital assignment at yeah, birth yeah. are then also somehow not really. They're just trying to pull one over. They're just trying yeah. to get into the bathrooms. They're just trying to see other women's genitals. Like the it's, genitals. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then, and we're going to get into this, I think, as we analyze the turf movement a little more. But uh, the idea that the presence of a penis, just its presence, is this like sexual threat, right? That it, it so much is, is imbued into the importance of of the this organ or set of organs that you may or may not have it's really a characteristic of turfdom i think it's really interesting though that you made that connection between this show naked attraction and turfism since the one episode i did manage to watch the first bachelorette was a was a trans woman and i don't want to extrapolate too much from one sh TV show and say that this is how all of British media or, or the mainstream British culture feel about things, but the show was very accepting of her and her identity as a woman. It was very supportive, but, but, but it was very clear, the, the way that the host phrased things and everything was very clear that this woman is a woman now because she was post-op. Correct. So she was not a pre-op Tra or just a trans woman. She was a trans woman who had a vagina. Yes. And when she came out naked and they said, well, what do you like about your body? She's like, my vagina. Yeah. My doctor said it's the best vagina he ever made. Like they were not going to have a trans woman come out with a penis. Right, right. It was, I, that was not going to happen. I thought that was um, very interesting. And there were a few little things like before the action of the game show really started there was this little interlude where they sort of explained and I even had a visual like diagram how when a man becomes a woman yes. this is how the penis is turned into a vagina yeah. so you know so viewers would understand that she has a vagina but also it was very specifically phrased when a man becomes a woman I yeah they that's another little thing they have on this show is that they have these weird like educational interludes like at one point they were talking about like a thigh gap and they were like by the way a thigh gap is this thing that people can, you know, idealize or find attractive but there's no control over it it's totally genetic whether your legs do that or not you can't exercise right. your way into a thigh gap. I'm like, whoa, whoa. Like, do you think do you think this show helps or hurts? I mean, like, <laughs> what do you what do you think you're doing here? I, yeah, I'm sure they think it helps. 
talk a little bit about British turfdom. You explained what a turf is, trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Um, what's going on in England? So uh, it's coming. It's come from many different directions. It's been written about a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, you have leading feminist academics who, with the rise of a sort of larger trans discourse, the idea of pronoun shifting, the idea of being able to legally be acknowledged for what gender you are, um, even if that is not the gender or sex that you have been assigned at birth, um, seems to make a lot of leading feminists extremely angry. There's a lot of rage at pronoun shifting. There's uh, Kathleen Stock, who is this leading yep. feminist, uh, lost her or quit her academic job and is now on the University of Austin, Texas uh, faculty, if you want to go back to that episode. So we have a lot of the sort of self-proclaimed canceled. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the very famous TERFs is J.K. Rowling, who's able to like make billions of dollars off a magical world where somehow people are still can only be the gender that they're born with mm -hmm. like you know it's kind of a <laughs> yeah. failure of imagination there but um, but but even that aside she has outside of her work as a fiction writer yes. been vocal and really a, a really unfortunately terrible influence in trying to promote these ideas uh, and and another place that it sort of surged out which has been written about which I found particularly interesting was a women's group for moms called Mumsnet, where uh, a lot of these women who might not have formerly considered themselves feminist all of a sudden have babies and realize how fucked up the world is towards women and mm -hmm. towards moms and they're all of a sudden like wait a second I'm a feminist this is bullshit we are being completely exploited and treated like shit wow there is no respect for mothers there's no you know security mm -hmm. network there's no there's none of that there's no help we are being right. so put into a box by having children but then the rage weirdly becomes at trans women who call themselves women without being at risk for pregnancy like that's where the anger goes like this one thing that I've often found mm. thought about turfs like this idea that you can just decide you're not a woman when so often women's lives and social rules for women are determined around your body yeah. um, and yeah. the idea that people with different bodies can say that they're women make making these people so angry and it's like but the thing you're mad at is the patriarchy it's not trans people like why are you so mad at the trans people right like, the thing that's a problem is patriarchy of course and what's really crazy is that this focus on trans people and this frustration i guess at the idea especially of trans women um, being acknowledged as women and sort of invading feminism, their anxiety around that leads TERFs into partnerships very directly with the exact conservative groups who are endangering women's rights. Yeah. And who are against yeah. women's rights, who are against all the things that actually would help mothers and, and people who can become pregnant and women in yeah. general. Yeah. And, and it's also because it can feel like there's been this huge shift in the discourse around transness, which there has been. 
But at the end of the day, the number of trans people is not so large, um, which I think sometimes makes uh, people angry. Like, why are you asking me to change, to use pronoun changes to have this conversation just for this, you know, minority of people, which are like, just why do you care? Like, anyway, but I think that there is this thing where, and I actually see it, I have to say, with a lot of older feminists, um, some of whom are teachers, where I think they feel a bit mystified, even queer women, mystified by this shift uh, among some of the youngs from queerness to transness, mm-hmm. uh, to saying that I'm this different identity as opposed to identifying maybe as like a butch dyke or like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to say I'm a man instead. Like there's definitely ways that that, that uh, picks at people in a way that that initial discomfort, I actually totally understand. But the way that it lands in this political rage and this focus of political energy against trans people, as opposed to saying, oh, what's my own discomfort around the idea that maybe there isn't a binary and maybe I can assign as I assign, like maybe I should look at my own discomfort. I, I It's very, it's very intense. So I think this is a good place for us to start getting into a little bit of the history of this, yes. um, because I think some of those questions are, uh, looking at the history can shed some light on some of those questions. And then also I want to talk about Britain and mm. why it's happening so much there, so much more than it seems to be happening here. Okay. All right. So from what I understand, and I don't know that much about it, Maya, you can correct me if I'm wrong in any way that you're aware of. This this trans-exclusionary radical feminist movement really started in the U.S. in the 70s and was an outgrowth of radical feminism mm-hmm. and particularly radical lesbian separatist feminism. Yes. Yes. And just to take a second with that is this idea that men are the oppressor, men have oppressed women, and the only way to be free is to completely disconnect from any relation with men. And so that is what a lot of women did. And a lot of trans lesbians wanted to be part of that movement, wanted to be part of different spaces, different events. And many lesbian separatist radical feminists did not want trans women involved. And this led to some conflict. And their rationale generally, as I understand it, was like, I came here to get away from penises. Yeah. Don't bring that in here. Well, and I, I and I do want to add that part of that is this, um, like the opening of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, which is very famous and influential feminist text, is she says, what is a woman? A woman is a womb. And I mm. think uh, part of it is this realization that, wow, women's biology has been determining what choices society allows our lives. Yeah. So we are fighting that. And you can't just say you're a woman because you choose to. Right, right. Because you're not dealing with what we're dealing with. You're not menstruating. You're not in danger of like having children. You're not being determined by that. I mean, that's, I think that's a big part of the rage. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's absolutely part of it. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about radical feminism and 
I want to also point out that I think the UK has less of a history of liberal feminism than the United States. I don't think there's ever really been a strong liberal feminist movement in the UK. And it kind of makes sense because um, in the United States, you know, we we have this government that's like enshrined in the constitution. It's all spelled out very clearly what human rights are, what rights we're entitled to. So it lends itself perfectly to the argument of like, I also uh, count in that category of human and I'm entitled to these rights. Like the, the very ideas of equality, liberty, personal, li like those very classically liberal ideas of like individual autonomy, they're so foundational to our beliefs about our government and ourselves that it makes sense that liberal feminism would be the dominant form of feminism that you'd see in the United States. In Britain, of course, they have liberal ideals, but it's less clear cut as you see in the United States. You know, there's more like common law that things are based on rather than this constitution that outlines things so absolutely. So, um, you don't see as strong a thread in the history of feminism of this kind of liberal feminism. You see a lot more radical feminism in Britain. Now, radical feminism, to be clear, is different from liberal feminism in that liberal feminists would argue for the inclusion of women within the institutions that, we, that already exist. Um, it's like equal pay for equal work. Yes. You get that in the United States. You don't get a lot of when the workers stop being exploited by the bourgeoisie, then all gender distinctions will be evaporated. You get this system is fine. We just need women to be equal within it. Right. Whereas radical feminism holds that the oppression of women is the root oppression and mm. everything else is built upon that. And it is also mm. the root of society, the society that we live in. And patriarchy, that term was coined by radical feminists. Patriarchy is this system by which men as a class oppress women as a class. And all of the institutions that are built upon that can't just be reformed. They have to go. They got to go. They have to go, burn it all down. And in terms of just genitally. Yes. <laughs> I think that you would see in Radical Feminists, and you saw it in Andrea Dworkin's writing, which uh, has gone in and out of fashion, but she said all intercourse is rape. Yes. All penis, all sex, vagina, yeah. intercourse, all sex is rape. All penetrative, vaginal yes. Yes, sex is rape. Yes. Yeah. All, like the penis is an oppressor instrument used by men to oppress the class of women we are going to get away from penises. Exactly. Which you can see, as we mentioned earlier, leads to uh, discomfort with the trans woman and her body and all of that. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah, the very idea that heterosexual penetrative sex is in itself a fo like a form of oppression or a tool of oppression, that did come out yes. of radical feminism. Correct. Also, out of radical feminism came the idea that gender is a social construction. Correct. That gender is, is a, a social class. Women are a class. Men are a class. These classes are determined by society. The um, patriarchy and the medical establishment of patriarchy looks at babies and says, you have this, you have that, you are in this class, you are in that class, and then your 
status in society, your rights, all of that get determined by that classification. And in fact, there is no innate idea of gender. So this, like, this is where I sort of kind of understood where TERFs were coming from, though I never agreed with them, is that um, if gender is a construction, I, I may have these particular set of physical, biological traits, but the idea that I'm a woman, the idea that, uh, you know, I should wear my hair a certain way, I'm going to choose whether to wear makeup or not, all of that stuff, anything that has to do with being a woman socially, all of that is uh, training that I've received from the patriarchy. Yeah. All of that. And so it, when a trans person says, actually, I just know in my mind, in my soul, however you want to put it, I just know that I am not in the group that they assigned me to. I just know I'm a woman and I won't feel right until I can live as a woman. This flies in the face of the idea that gender is a total social construction, that gender is not innate to your mind or body. Well, and I wanted to add, so one of uh, one of these TERFs, uh, Suzanne Moore wrote, in The Guardian, female oppression is innately connected to our ability to reproduce. Women have made progress by talking about biology, menstruation, childbirth, and menopause. We won't now have our bodies or voices written out of the script. I feel like who's <laughs> writing it out of the script? Trans people or like yeah. patriarchy? Patriarchy is who's writing it out of the script. Like they don't want to hear about menopause. They, yeah, you know, yeah. like they no, absolutely. They don't want planned parenthood. They don't want people to no, be able to control course. their reproductive destiny. But like this they're goes not your to, allies. But this goes to okay. If women is a social class then we have to be able to define who is in this class or not. Of course, it's patriarchy who fucking defines who's in the class or not and always has been patriarchy. But the TERFs do this thing where they flip it around and it becomes if there's no clear-cut uh, set of criteria for who gets to claim to be a woman, then everybody can claim to be a woman. Anyone can claim it and the, it loses all meaning. Well, and then how do we fight for our rights right. or how do That's we stand up for ourselves or how do we, you know? Yeah. And so in theory, the idea was supposed to be we don't want there to be a category of woman. That's a social construction. It's a patriarchal construction. But how do we fight for our rights if we can't define who we are? That's how they frame it. And mm -hmm. that leads to the rejection of trans women. But I think to get into the question of the UK, apparently this trans-exclusionary thread of feminism really came to the UK in the 80s. And another important influence was later, I think in the 90s and maybe early 2000s, was the UK skeptics movement. From what I've read and understand, the UK skeptics movement of the 90s and 2000s was very pro-science to the extent of treating science like it was um, or like it is just this like uh, absolute set of indisputable facts That's right. that that any rational person because skepticism is about rejecting religions it's about uh, embracing rationality and reason so any reasonable person any rational person has to accept science as being absolutely real and they also were very opposed to post-structuralism and 
the ways in which post-structuralism, within academia, of course, but um, the way post-structuralism encourages you know, the breakdown of such ideas about absolute knowledge. Uh, they were rejecting that. And so that blended nicely <laughs> with the idea of the absoluteness of sex about immutable biological reality of the sex binary. And, and I want to add that one of the things that actually was a big part of helping uh, something like queer rights or gay rights uh, in the 80s and 90s and into the aughts is this idea that like you don't choose to be gay. You are, you're born this way. Mm -hmm. There are biological differences. We're going to study the brains of like right. a bunch of gay men versus a bunch of straight men. Like there are just these differences. And in a lot of ways, that was very helpful at key points of queer liberation in terms of legally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like you don't have a choice in the matter. So we can't treat these people like outsiders, like perverts, like they were born this way. So I feel like some of those things actually had their had their moments uh, in ways that we would probably consider very useful and helpful, but they had their limits as well. Yeah, certainly. And I think we see that with a lot of justice movements coming up with frameworks that allow legal progress, but then have a downside in how it encourages people to conceptualize things. Or they continue to evolve. <laughs> That's another way. They can continue to evolve. They can continue to that's a good way of thinking about it. So overall, you get these different threads that lead to turfism as we're seeing it today. There is the rejection of the idea of gender identity, because gender mm -hmm. identity means that gender is not a social construction. But, right. but then there's this embracing of essentialism, this sort of perverse yes. way they become gender essentialists in that in order to fight against this system that puts them in this category they don't want to be in, they have to carefully define this category Absolutely. And so they can fight for their rights. It's this kind of weird paradoxical thing going on. It leads them to embrace and hold fast to distinctions like the gender binary basically but um they use science to hold fast to those distinctions and that's like a major thread in all turf discourse is this idea that science is real science is just real you can't fight that even though if you're really a radical feminist you know the ways that science has co-opted patriarchal language and notions. I, one of my favorite papers that I, I remember talking about on an earlier episode was this amazing thing about the, like, it was like a history of science description about like, well, think about the language we even use for like the sperm and the egg. We don't say that the egg absorbs one sperm. We're like one sperm gets to win and penetrate the egg. Even that language is absolutely patriarchally determined and doesn't necessarily best describe the biological process that it's attempting to describe. Right. But it's there to perpetuate ideas about like the one man, the one single sperm winning yeah. the race. Right, male competition. And like, and, male competition. And male being the, the, yeah, the penetrator. And this, the this passive receptive 
egg, this yeah. receptive egg that just wants one. Yeah. She doesn't <laughs> want to have more than one partner. She just wants one sperm that's going to be her. Like, it's all determined. It, it's so a like great if, example. If really, yeah. It's a very good example. The bigger idea being that science is a patriarchal institution like science okay science is a method of doing things but science as it has always been done as it has been exercised and all of the knowledge that has come out of that has been within the context of male-dominated societies and so the questions of what to study and how to study it have all been determined mostly by men and and 100% within patriarchal cultures and so the outcomes you get the knowledge you that and it's always tentative knowledge in science right all of that should be looked at with strong skepticism by a genuine radical feminist this was sociology of gender like 1a whatever at berkeley that i took the first day, that was the first thing the professor said, was like, let's be clear, gender is a social category that is based on a supposed biological category that is also constructed. Sex is also a construction. There are not just two sexes. There's actually quite a spectrum of what one's genitals can be like. All categories are constructions, okay, people? And that's also something that I think is really interesting about this moment of transness is that you are seeing people starting to try to think about it in a different way. And I actually think that mm-hmm. in in all of these sort of justice movements or acknowledgments of the self as something different than what you were raised to believe, there's also a lot of like... Uh, fighting for real estate and planting the flag and naming it something. And what I'm not seeing is like, there was a a sexologist who was killed by the Nazis. Like, there's a book, everybody should read it. It's by Susan Faludi. It's called In the Dark Room. But she finds out that her father, who was this Hungarian uh, uh, survivor of whatever, of the Holocaust, uh, who she hasn't talked to in 25 years because it was a fucking horrible, abusive monster, has had a sex change operation and is now a woman back living in Hungary. And so it's this very personal book, but she also gets into, because she's a sociologist, mm-hmm. she's like, let's look at the history of sex change. In America, sex change was always very binary, very essentialist. This is a woman in a man's body. And there was a Hungarian sexologist who was killed by the Nazis who's like, no, there are as many genders as people living contemporaneously with the person who performed the first sex change operations. And that idea of gender got obliterated uh, by this person's work being destroyed by the Nazis. So this Mm -hmm. idea of this kind of flexibility of gender, the mutability of gender, that there is this potential for something that's not so anchored. Oh, yeah. Um, is in conflict with what you need to do to get political rights. And I feel like in that tension is where we are seeing these TERFs get angry at all the wrong things. At all the wrong things, yeah. <laughs> all of the wrong things. Just so, like, oh, guys. It's clear that they're not radical feminists anymore. I will say no. the movement did start with radical feminists, but I, I think TERF is actually a misnomer because they're not radical. There, I mean, nothing could be less radical than being against the rights of a minority group. Like, that's right. just, if they're and, not radical. And deciding, and there's nothing radical about looking at a minority group and being like, you know what? You're the problem. 
yeah, for me. You're the problem. Like, really? Yeah. Really, guys? Um, yeah, Oof. yeah. Oof. The, Oof. They're not radical Oof. in that sense. Embracing the sex binary, like, clinging so hard to the sex binary, not radical. There's not nothing radical. radical about that. Um, arguably, I think clearly they're not feminist. <laughs> no. They, they seem no. to think they are. No. They take on the language of feminism and they claim to be concerned about women's rights and the idea that women will be somehow erased if trans women are recognized as women. This will just erase the category of woman. And to be clear, their feelings about trans men are not that they are threatening, but that um, they are lost little souls, little girls who just don't know who they and are. Just, and feel like the only way that they can have powers to be men and they are right. not able to find their own powers. Right. Who wouldn't want to be a man in our society, right. right? That's all. They've been convinced that that's what they need to do. But in all of this, they engage in these uh, methods of argument and these premises that are so unfeminist. For example, saying that trans men are women, but they don't deserve bodily autonomy. They're yeah. women who don't know their own minds. So it's belittling and condescending toward them. Um, they also uh, use the threat of sexual violence. Yes. Which is That's an right. age-old tool used by people who don't give a shit about women or sexual violence. Yeah. Yeah, and people who also, it's been an age-old tool of every kind of queer oppression that somehow yes. queer people are all pedophiles and somehow trans women just want to get into the dressing room to watch you take off your shirt. It's horseshit. They want to, no, they want to get into the bathroom so they can rape you there. Yeah. Which is like, I think it's worth reiterating, number one, trans women are way more likely to be yeah. victims of sexual assault than to commit sexual assault. Like, way more likely. The, the rates are astronomical and really horrible. Um, also, people who are survivors of sexual assault mo are mostly attacked by people they know. Like, yeah. it's not a stranger in a bathroom. That's very rare. Um, not that it doesn't happen or that we should care, but like you were saying, it's a real weird thing to focus your attention on. And just there's a quote that I wanted to read because um, I think it's connected in terms of the sort of defining, this sort of anxious defining um, that it leads the conversation into actually really boring places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so even even among the emergence of transness, like that that yeah. that people are like staking their flag in so they can define themselves, so they can create some kind of political power. So uh, Grace Lavery is a British academic and writer who is trans. And in an interview, she said, my own experience of transition has been so much about finding new words. And I do find that phrases like trans women are women, whatever their merits as assessments of taxonomy, start to look less like statements of pride and more like flags of surrender. Mm. There's no doubt that TERFs want us gone, eradicated, out of their bathroom, schools, families, minds. So it makes sense that we would try to protect ourselves with statements of that kind. But it doesn't mean that they're the only way to explain the phenomenon of transition or the best way. Mm. So I feel like this, this idea of a more generative, 
uh, inclusive, diverse, strange, uh, unpin-downable, sometimes slightly inchoate way of looking at gender is very terrifying for these TERFs. And yes. it's also very terrifying for conservatives. And and so they are finding this bizarre alliance. And, and one of the things that brings us back to the free speech thing, that a lot of these TERFs, a lot of these feminists are like, we're not even allowed to ask about these ideas. And it's very much like the way that conservatives are like, well, I'm just wondering about skull sizes and right. intelligence no, yeah. among like black. It's like, what? I don't have the right to just say maybe these trans women want to rape us in a bathroom. Like you're you're stepping on my rights. And it's like the same They're, You're not just discourse. seeing an analogy. These folks also have come together over yes. that, that self-designation as oppressed person who's not allowed to speak freely. Yes. Um, separate from coming together to oppose trans people and trans rights. Yes. This doesn't go too far, though, in helping me understand why it has taken such hold in the UK instead of just the United States, though I think there there's some clues, like in the lack of a history of liberal feminism, so right. um, radical feminism has been more prominent. Um, Grace Lavery mentioned something, uh, she is British, about Britain's essential prudishness. <laughs> prudishness, yeah. And there is a total prudishness to it, right? I think that's really well identified. Well, and I think that what it points back to, which makes me sad for the British turfs, because that's at the end of the day, like I feel sad about them in a way that I don't as much about, you know, like incels, which I feel like mad about that. Yeah. And maybe I should feel angrier than just sad. But there's this feeling that the threat of looser rules about what gender and sexuality is and can be about mm -hmm. something that's mm -hmm. more porous and open and kind of interesting could trigger so much anxiety that it's actually it is the destruction of everything that feminism actually is supposed to be about correct and so is uh, naked attraction. I feel like naked attraction. We just got to bring it back. <laughs> just bring it back. Just bring, bring it, it back. back. This reduction of genital definition as the center of desire right. uh, is the oppression of all things. All things good. It's also, I want to just add that it is particularly insidious because these folks who are all focused on oppressing a very badly oppressed group further. Yes. They just are against granting yes. rights <laughs> or acknowledging the rights of a very oppressed group are doing it under the mantle of feminism. It's not just that they're calling themselves that. It's that they are positioning themselves as being for women's rights. Therefore, if you are pro-trans, you are against women's yes. rights. Yes. And it allows, in the UK at least, it allows them to get very mainstream platforms and On get taken seriously. Like Rupert Murdoch's, you know, papers. Like yeah. that's like all of those horrible tabloids. They get a lot of love. And it it even like even gets my mom to read one of their books. Mm. You know, she's a Fox News watcher, so that's probably where she found out about it. But she's also a feminist. Like, she's all for women's rights and all of that. And so you present it as, this is about women's rights. We are protecting women 
that's an in that gets you taken seriously somehow by a lot of people. And it's really, it's really horrible and insidious. All right, guys, I know I have some British listeners out there. What are we missing about why this chirp thing is a particularly British thing? We want to hear from you. Let us know your thoughts. Um, you can email us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on the social media platforms as at Sauce Podcast. But probably the best thing to do is go to patreon.com slash saucepodcast. If you become a member of our Patreon, then you can join the Sauce Speakeasy, which we talked about at the top of the show, and share your thoughts about this episode, past episodes, what episodes you'd like to hear, what's going on in current events, whatever the hell you feel like talking about. And we would love to talk to you. And we'll be figuring out a level of membership that allows you to have lunch with us. Uh, If you want to find me, I am at Maya Garantz. Anywhere you're looking for your Maya Garantz. And I, Rebecca Cohen, can be found as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. All right, listeners, we'll be back. We have more problematic faves. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. It's a crazy time for streaming media, and we are getting into it. Until next time, adios, amigos. Adios.